Welcome to Be Dead Source, your home for trouble in River City. My name's Nathan, your most rockin' host. <laughs> My name's Andy, your most baroque host. I'm your most delectable host, Pat. And we have a special guest today. Yeah, very special guest. Uh, uh, another another friend of mine. So far, we've just been working through my friends list. Uh, <laughs> um, this is a, a special <laughs> friend of mine, though, from college. His name is Jared, and he's here to do some a very special, different kind of episode with us, something more musical. Uh, Jared, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Jared Soroff, like Andy said, and I'm a pianist. We went to school together, and then from there, uh, I studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music and uh, picked up a master's degree in piano performance from Cleveland State, where I stay there. I teach there now. I'm on faculty. And in addition to teaching, I'm also the director of music ministries for a church here in Middleburg Heights, which has been fantastic. So I enjoy doing piano, both piano and organ. So as an organist, you know, I do this with the church and I take gigs all over the place. I think that my most notable gig or experience so far in my career, such as it is, um, I did get to go and perform overseas. I performed in Portugal and uh, France. Wow. Only, you know, haven't, obviously now with the COVID... It, it, well, it was right. pretty cool. But with the COVID, you know, it's one thing that really, it was so awful about musicians with the COVID. Not to make this about that, but it's like, no. it's the huge elephant in the room that you just have to talk about at least once Boy, while we're doing this, right? If only Trump had handled it better. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> the other, the bigger elephant, right? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I had to do it. Okay. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Um, but is that, you know, like back in April, I had more gigs lined up, more concerts lined up and engagements than ever. I was happily sitting there calculating my earnings for the month of April and May and things, and then literally overnight, everything was canceled. Everything was canceled. So I am really, and I'm the kind of person that needs to be in front of someone just talking, you know, like that's just, or doing something, (laughs) that's just how I am. So to be able to to be invited to do something like this is truly, um, I'm really flattered and I'm really excited to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, we are, we are stoked we've never done anything like this on the podcast having live music so we're really excited to be entertained uh <laughs> are you entertained all right i'm done i'm not done it's well, I, think, just I think partially so because we work in an audio medium this is not going to come across well but you are in like a really spectacular looking room right now and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you are. Yeah, so I'm actually here at the church that I work at in Middleburg Heights, Middleburg Heights United Church of Christ. I am one of only a few people that's allowed to be in the building right now because we're not doing in-person services. Um, actually, as a side note, another way in which my career has changed is that I produce three or four recordings a week now of Whoa. people singing, uh, myself playing and, and virtual collaborations, you know, things I never wow. thought that I would have to do. Kind of like how we never thought we'd have a Trump president. Well, I never thought that I'd be in this situation. <laughs> so, you, know, you know, things like that. So, but this, this space, it's a, uh, acoustically, it's not a very, very large church in the sense that it's not a very like long aisle, you know, like if you go downtown to St. John's Cathedral or something like that, but it is a mid-century modern building. So, it's got its own level of quirk to it, you know, uh, for a church. But it's it's a nice acoustic. Um, I've had a lot of concerts in here, so it's weird now to be in here when it's empty all the time. But 
the reason I chose to be in here is because um, of the piano. The, this piano I'm sitting at, um, actually the grand piano that I'm sitting at right now, I have worked here for almost six years and I have probably spent close to, oh gosh, I don't know, I'm going to throw a number out there because I'm not sure, but probably over 1,000, 1,500 hours sitting right here practicing um, on this mm, instrument. So wow. it's, it's like it's my instrument, you know, so um, that's why I'm here um, today with that. Do you, you really like have a feel like you can, you know where the keys are kind of instinctively, you, is that a thing? It's like home field advantage, but for pianos? Exactly. No, that is a, that is a real thing. Oh yeah, I've, I, pra- yeah, I prepared for a lot of stuff sitting on this piano. I can get it to do almost whatever I want it to do. Um, you know, when it's, it has a problem, I, I know it and I have the yeah. technician out to fix it. And, uh, yeah, if I ever leave this church, I'll really miss this piano. <laughs> That's so, and I mean, I, I love me some classical music and, and one of the kind of cool things about very prolific performers in not just classical music, but also, you know, rock and roll and jazz and stuff is they, they very famously have like a favorite instrument. So that makes, a, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, they have that trademark instrument that I guess you really kind of build a relationship with it. Precisely. It's, it's very true. That's yes. cool. So you could probably be blindfolded and you would still know where everything's at. Um, you would think, I don't know, I've actually never tested that. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, folks, next week. <laughs> well, let's do it here on the podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so before we go too far down that rabbit hole, I know that Nathan is going to m- get very upset if we try we to gotta skip over. we got to talk about our week. You guys always try and skip over what happened during our week, and I won't allow it to happen. I also feel like I should say, people keep on laughing when we bring up Trump. It's because before the episode started, we were all joking about this probably won't be a long episode because we're not talking about Trump. And we can always, like, like turn any topic back into something Trump-related. So It really is incredible how, how versatile we are at getting if he doesn't Trump. If he doesn't win re-election, like, we're not going to have a podcast anymore. We'll have nothing to talk about. Yeah, you better hope this music one goes well. I'll be, I will be okay with that. You can redefine <laughs> yourself. <laughs> so how was your week, guys? Well, let's see. I don't... I've started this sentence without knowing how I'm going to... F- Finish it. Uh, I, I'll um, jump in then. Uh, okay. So good. actually, in this past week, I, I forgot which which day it was some evening this week though. Um, Caitlin and I were driving home from from somewhere, and we were driving kind of pa- so almost past your house, and we decided I decided to take a little detour to, to go past it, to take a look at your garden because you've talked so so much about it, and I wanted to see it. And yes. um, it's beautiful. It was awesome. Thanks. Very easily the the best garden on the street, but like it was just gorgeous, and we wanted to like kind of stop by some time, some other time, and look, you know, in person. We didn't, we couldn't stop the car, but <laughs> well, feel free, uh, feel free to stop by whenever. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's always fun because you look out, uh, especially uh, earlier in the day, uh, in the morning, early afternoon. And you can't keep track of how many bees are out there and, like, just, like, we have butterfly bushes out there. We have all kinds of stuff to attract the little buggies. And, yeah, it's great. Yeah, uh, I don't like bugs, but I I love the flowers. (laughs) Well, one sort of, like, leads to the other. Yeah, unfortunately. It's called an ecosystem. They're all interdependent. 
<laughs> Speaking of interdependent uh, ecosystems, uh, I guess the sort of interesting thing that happened to me this week is, uh, you guys already know about this, but I'm an uncle again. Oh, yeah. Nice. I, uh, my uh, sister gave birth on Wednesday to Milo, who was 6 pounds, 11 ounces, I believe. So a tiny little guy, but I've seen pictures. But another one of those things that coronavirus has taken away from us. Yeah. Because I desperately want to be there. And I can't, so just, like, soaking up as many pictures and videos and everything as I can. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel you. We've talked about it before, but I've had already two nieces born during this quarantine. Um, I have a pseudo-nephew who will be born in the November, December, maybe January. Uh, I think the due date actually is... I think the due date is right around Christmas, so... December or January. You What's know, a that, pseudo nephew? Well, you know, uh, 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 what uh, Caitlin's best friend is pregnant, so it's gonna be okay. like we're yeah. gonna be Uncle Andy and Aunt Caitlin, but well, other way around, Aunt Caitlin, Uncle Andy. I don't know. I like. I'm very. I feel that chosen family is just important as a blood family. Sometimes more so, depending on how much your blood family sucks. Yeah, well, well, so. I mentioned I mentioned my aunt last week, and my aunt's doing well. She's recovering nicely. It was uh, arthritis. Good. And um, so she got surgery on her foot. She's going around in a wheelchair now, but she's recovering really well. They gave her some really good pain medication because I think oh, unfortunately yeah. it was really painful uh, surgery and stuff. But she's recovering nicely, so really <laughs> glad for that. And, and Jared, not to put you on the spot, but you you have all of human history to pull from if you want to. We can only speak to what we've done since the last time we recorded. Yeah, nothing ever happens to me, I feel like. But I will say, yeah, I feel like we're actually living parallel lives because I was going to talk about my garden too. I totally got into gardening this year. <laughs> um, I'd never really been into it before, but this year I've just like, I'm just like completely obsessed with it. So that's what's ha basically happened to me this summer, you know, with the- Can I yeah. ask? What are you growing? I mean, what, what kinds of stuff are you into? Um, vegetables. A lot of vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. I got, um, well, I have some cantaloupes finally starting to get big. A couple, um, which is, I hadn't planned to grow cantaloupes, but I saw a cantaloupe plant sitting there and I thought, oh, you know, I'll just give that a try. And it's working out. <laughs> so that's kind of how my garden really just, started, to be honest. Um, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Just eating a cantaloupe out in the garden, spit some seeds out, and there you go. Exactly. So I love I love fresh tomatoes. Like the, I mean, a lot of vegetables are better when they're grown locally and just really fresh. But for some reason, to me, it's tomatoes that really like yeah. the difference between the grocery store tomatoes and the your backyard tomatoes. The backyard tomatoes are just better, just like way way better. I can't believe it. There's no compare. Like I grew up, my parents always had a massive massive garden, and so I grew up doing a lot of you know helping them. As a kid, you know, pick out a whole bunch of tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, and, and grapes from the grapevines and things like that. But so now to have it myself, I'm like, every day I'm out there looking at the tomatoes like, okay, are you starting to ripen yet? No, still still not <laughs> ripening. But yes, so I'm excited oh, to man. have my own homegrown tomatoes. G grape tomatoes. But all of our grape tomatoes got eaten are getting eaten by deer this year. But actually yeah. there's a, there's yeah. a uh, famous... Uh, well, maybe the song isn't that famous, but there's a song about homegrown tomatoes by John Denver, and it's a phenomenal little ditty. I highly recommend it, and I don't even like country music, 
Well, we'll throw it in the doobly-doo if you can remember what the name of it is. It's called Homegrown Tomatoes. <laughs> homegrown Tomatoes, Homegrown Tomatoes. What would life be without a homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy. And that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Oh well, that's that's easy enough then. Yeah. The thing, the other thing I like about homegrown tomatoes is yes, they taste a thousand times better. Yeah. But we, I think we all joke like at least when we were kids, everybody joked about oh, tomato is a fruit, right? Oh, ha ha. It is. But if you eat, if you eat a fresh tomato out of your own garden, it is super easy to tell why that why that vegetable that you think is a vegetable is actually a fruit because of the flavor that that you get. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Although, well, the reason that it's a fruit actually has to do with the seeds, but seeds. I know, but you're right, you're right. The sweetness is just, oh, there, it's like, I, I it's may as well be charts. a grape or a cherry. It's just, yeah. oh, so good. So. Yeah, to transition us a little bit. So this, this conversation. grapes and cherries. This conversation came up um, because I think we were talking about. Some contemporary artist, it might have been Michael Jackson or or somebody that is controversial, um, who had controversy that came out like independently of their music, and we were asking the question like, can you still enjoy music after there's this asterisk by an artist's name, or does it change your enjoyment? Well, and and this is such a huge question because. I mean, there's when we're talking about art and uh, you know whether it's music or or sculpture or um, you know cinema or, or theater or any sort of art that those are the cultural cornerstones that shape our world. So these things are right at the center of of our existence and and how we you know our idioms and everything and. You know, when when you delve into these artists, you very often find that they were very troubled, very deeply flawed, um, and and so yeah. Here, to, Jared's here to talk with us about a couple of these in particular. Yeah, and I absolutely love this question. Um, I don't obviously love that we have to have this question, but I do, I do, this is something that I think is extremely important to grapple with. Um, And even, you know, recently deceased artists such as Michael Jackson, you know, um, I guess my point is not just kind of what I'm looking at is I'm going to look at two composers who have been dead for a relatively long time, you know. Um, So we still talk about Michael Jackson who kind of just relatively recently passed Okay, and his music is still enjoyed by a lot, a lot of people, you know, on a, a more popular level than kind of the music that I'm talking about now. So, of course, Michael Jackson has been put under a magnifying glass and, since his death, and rightfully so, I think. Okay, um, and just like some you know, living artists now that are, uh, you know, being held accountable for their actions and things that they've done and their character flaws. All right, so I want to talk about Tchaikovsky, who is one of my favorite composers. And he is... Who am I Did you say he's yours too, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's hard not to. I mean, if you think about even people who are not classical music lovers, class, you know, supporters of their local symphony orchestra or whatnot, 
if you there are so many tunes that you just know and you may or may not even know that are his. You know, the Nutcracker, of course, is the, probably the the most obvious example. And there's just the Romeo and exactly, Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. And um, Sleeping Beauty Waltz, uh, this, you know, Waltz from Sleeping mm. Beauty, the love uh, theme from um, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, there's just so, mm-hmm. so many. And what I, I want to talk about, one, before I even talk about kind of the things that are important in Tchaikovsky's life that I do want to talk about, I want to kind of defend him a little bit. More specifically, I want to defend his music, kind of like separating his music from him. Um, so, first of all, everyone, whether you know it or not, you are familiar. You have heard, at some point in your life, somewhere, you have heard the first uh, piano concerto uh, by Peter Tchaikovsky. Okay? So, this concerto, actually, in his own day, when it was written, he dedicated it to his his mentor, right? His uh, his mentor at the, uh, the uh, Moscow Conservatory. And it was, at first, it was um, really contested by his peers. Um, of course, um, Anton Rubinstein said, you know, there's no way this is even performed. We can't even perform this. It's just impossible. <laughs> that, you know. That's what was said about all the greatest works ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and, and you know this, Andy, probably, because... You, you you might not his violin concerto got the same. I was going to say you might not know this, but Andy and I uh, went to a we listened to the violin concerto at a um, a concert. What was that like a year ago or so? And uh, it's the same with that. It, it, it's not yeah. re, it, you know. And the the problem with these two works are that they are similar in the sense that um, they are what I call they're very clumsy. The writing is very clumsy for. The performer, right? So I like approaching things as a pianist. It is it's very clumsy because Tchaikovsky himself was not the best pianist. I don't even really think he was an incredible violinist either. You know, re the violin concerto. But not that it matters because what ended up happening with the the first concerto is that after Rubinstein said that this is ridiculous, it's and he berated Tchaikovsky for hours about it. And of course, Tchaikovsky was the kind of person. Which we'll talk a little bit about his self, his self-loathing uh, as we go on. But he was the kind of person who just could not take any criticism. He absolutely he was the, one of the most self-loathing individuals anyone will come across. So sensitive. Okay. So the first uh, concerto. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe worth pointing out because I don't know if necessarily all the listeners know enough of, of like terminology yeah. here. Um, but when we talk about a concerto, what are, what are we talking about That's here? That's a great question. So a concerto is a piece of music that features an orchestra with a soloist. And what I mean by a soloist is if it's a piano concerto, you'll have a pianist out in front. If it's a violin concerto, there's a violin out in front. So some, at times the orchestra is accompanying the soloist. And at times, the soloist, a lot, in Tchaikovsky, the, the piano concerto, the, he, he is a really good way of writing so that at times the piano is, just becomes a part of the fabric of the orchestra, just a part of, just a part of the orchestra and not just a soloist above the orchestra or just accompanying a, you know, things happening in the orchestra. It's a multi-movement work, right? So if you go to a concert or, you know, go, get a, um, a playlist or something, you'll see that there's three movements, four movements, sometimes. Um, sometimes a piano concerto can be 
just one through movement, just one movement. We call that a through movement. This is not one of those. This is written in uh, three movements. And so basically the formula, the, the very, very basic, basic boiled down version of explaining the formula for a large work like this is the three movements are fast, slow, fast, right? So what I mean by that okay. is the first movement if you go back to the days of Mozart, the days of Haydn, the Concerto Grosso back in the Baroque period when these things were new, the first movement was always a you know a very sprightly, you know, allegro, uh, molto allegro, something like that. And then the middle movement could be a very slow adagio. And then the third movement was usually another very fast movement to get us, you know, to the end. Like I think of I think of Beethoven where you've got the, the big Turkish dancey kind of feel at the end where just you want to get up and, and dance in the aisle at the concert. Oh absolutely, yeah. And Tchaikovsky creates that in this concerto too, in, in the third movement, very, very, very brilliantly. But so for this concerto there are, like I said, three movements and they usually the the names of the movements are referred to by the tempo, the indication of the tempo. Like, what is the tempo? And so, usually, some Italian words, like andante, non troppo, e molto maestoso, is the first movement. The second movement, andantino, semplice. And the third movement, allegro con fuoco. Basically, saying the tempo. So, for most people, the, the names of the movements really just don't mean anything. <laughs> just listen to it and try to... <laughs> fast, so fast. Yeah, yeah well... It, Exactly. So anyway, so the really looking at this, this concerto is one of the reasons why it was most controversial at the time and why there are so many musicologists and people who are pseudo musicologists or whatever I am, which is a level <laughs> below that probably, right? <laughs> pseudo pseudo musicologists who just do, who have so many problems with this concerto and just don't like it because these kind, if you label something a concerto, a symphony, a, a piano sonata, a string quartet, it's almost implying that you are a slave to the form from which it, it, it's been formed from tradition, right? You're a slave to making sure that, because within these movements, right, there, they, it has its own form. I could get in. Sure, there's sonata form, there's mm -hmm. ritornello form. Exactly. I, did I just make no, that up? Th th that's, that's, that's right. There's your rondo form, there's, um, Rondo, Themes and yeah. variations. Mozart had a lot of those. Well, rondo form is usually the third movement, right? Isn't that usually a rondo Correct. form? Correct, Andy. So the reason I asked really, what are we talking about when we're dealing with a concerto? Yeah. And this is what you were just elaborating on, but I, I would love to hear a little bit more. So you, you said that this concerto, or the soloist, the piano part, was clumsy. Yeah. And there's this relationship between the, the soloist and the rest of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's that that you're referring to as clumsy, um, right? Sort of, but more specifically, it's more the, the the piano writing itself and how it is from for the performer to perform it, right? It's mm. there's a lot of um, big thick textures and just a lot of notes that just come at you very very fast in ways that don't fit under your hands very well, right? The the cadenza, another fancy music word for in a concerto, we have what's called a cadenza, usually, and that's a part where the orchestra completely cuts out and the soloist plays um, a virtuosic, flashy, you know, somewhat extended passage, and then the orchestra comes back in, and then we have the coda, of the, the first movement of the concerto, and it's over, right? That cadenza is, it. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time with this concerto, uh, a lot of time 
um, learning it and things. And I can tell you that cadenza is out, out of the whole, the whole concerto is about 45 minutes long, right? Out of all those 45 minutes, those mm, two and a half minutes are just, it's so awkward and it's so difficult because of the way it's written. It's, it doesn't, it's very strange for the feeling for the pianist to play. So if that helps. So not only, so not only is it technically difficult, but it's written without really consideration for ergonomics or for ease. Exactly, exactly. And so I'll tell you what ended up happening with this concerto. There were two versions of it, right? So Tchaikovsky vowed to not change any of it because it was perfect in his mind, right? (laughs) (laughs) What a Tchaikovsky thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But then he talked to um, um, Hans von Bülow, who was a very famous pianist uh, back in uh, the late 19th century, mid-19th century, late-19th century, and who looked at it and agreed to perform it and give its debut in Boston. Now... I love his name, by the way. Hans von Bülow. Yeah, I mm. see, I, as a kid, in every, like, you know, all these Beethoven editions, all these music editions, he edited a lot of them, so his name is just plastered all over sheet music for, like, all eternity. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so to, nice. to know that basically what happened was it just took someone... To give him a little bit of a you know nicer way of saying, your work is amazing, <laughs> but there's you know we might consider some changes, right? And so then a second version actually ended, did end up coming out of it, and I've compared the two side by side, and the first version is even more awkward to play than this 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 version. <laughs> so, um, so based, yeah, that's kind of the overview. There's a, while we're still on the subject of form for this piece, it. This does tie into what I want to sort of talk about, which is why a lot of people don't like it in the in the high you know levels of music scholarship or the people who <laughs> think that they're in that high level, because the form of the first movement is awkward. Like Andy had mentioned earlier, sonata sonata form, you know that's usually what is used for the first movement of a concerto, right? So you have like your first theme, your second theme, your development and a recapitulation, and sometimes a coda, right? That's usually the formula that we have. Tchaikovsky brings in at the the first, oh, let's see, we don't even get to the first theme until measure 108. So the first 108 measures, which might not mean, yeah. might not mean a whole lot to people, so I'd say that that's, oh gosh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll suggest you guys um, a recording to listen to so you can listen to it. And I think it's probably like the first five, five or six minutes, I want to say, find out on your own, but is not, has it doesn't have anything to do with the form of the rest of the concerto. And a lot of people look at form as being sort of like the adhesive, if you will, that holds the structure of it together. So if you don't have that form, then there's no structure. You know, we don't know what to expect next. We don't know where we are, right? So anyway, so I want to talk about the, this first theme that he brings in, which everyone has probably heard, and I'm going to play, play, it for you now. So the orchestra comes in um, with a kind of dramatic introduction with some chords, but then the piano comes in, and this piano entrance is actually the, a very good entrance for the pianist. The whole this whole first section is just it feels so good. You play these huge chords, you hear the orchestra, you warm up your hands. The chords 
sound, you know, really difficult, but they're not, but it's just very good. So after the, the piano comes in with these thundering... And, and so on and so forth. Now, and what's really cool is that you you get to play this these big chords, and they're easy, they sound good, they're getting your hands warmed up, and you get to listen to the orchestra right next to you playing this most amazing melody. And so on and so forth. Um, this melody, which when you listen to a recording, you might think, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I've, I've heard it. It's indisputably, I think, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It, it's just, it feels good to hear, and it's easy to follow, and it's very accessible to any level of listener. And, of course, then the piano comes in with the first mini cadenza, if you will, with that. <laughs> and so forth. But the problem is, the problem, if you want to call it a problem, I don't think it's a problem, is that after this, you know, they, there's this uh, wonderful virtuosic section that I kind of uh, started for you, and then the theme is repeated with some big, clumsy piano, you know, chords on the piano this time, uh, you know, going up the keyboard that way, and then the theme disappears, it never comes back. It's gone for the whole rest of the movement, for the whole rest of the concerto, which is something that, you know, that's just was relatively unheard of during that time. And it's also not really something that you, you know, you hear a lot uh, when you listen to concertos. To glue it together accurately, right, he should have brought that theme back and towards the, the end, like the coda, the recapitulation, to sort of resolve it, right? Because it's mm -hmm. unresolved. Mm -hmm. You only have it once. It's not really developed upon very much, and then it never comes back in a big, you know, grandiose fashion to end the movement. Anyway, so... <laughs> that that piece this, is so funny to me because I know it, like, when you started playing it, I, like, I could follow it exactly because I've heard it in a bunch of different places, but I think I've heard it, like, I'm trying to re remember what commercial did I listen to that piece in because I definitely didn't <laughs> seek it out as a piece of classical music. And I think that's probably where a lot of people are coming from. Yeah. Oh, that, that's absolutely right. There, this is the case with a lot of his music. I can't even think of all the examples, or even half of them, probably. Mm -hmm. um, but, but not to get too bogged down with the just the analysis of this particular first movement, which is a, the longest movement. It's the whole thing is about forty. 45 minutes long. The first movement's half of the whole length of the, the about <laughs> a little over 20 minutes long. But one thing that, and the, one of the reasons why you say that, you know, I, I recognize that, but I'm not sure yeah. from where, is because Tchaikovsky, like Schubert, I'll talk about in a minute, was a masterful melody writer. Believe it or not, not everyone, not every composer was. Beethoven wasn't. Mm -hmm. You know, this... 
that's nice, but it's not a melody, right? <laughs> it's, it's what we call a motive, right? Moving on with this, with this concerto movement is we have, so we have the first theme, but the second theme, which is first introduced by the orchestra, and then the piano uh, repeats that, is I think just one, it's just an amazing, it's a beautiful, yeah. um, gut-wrenching sort of uh, moment in the concerto. So here's the second theme. a very stark contrast to what we heard before mm -hmm. right yeah and it's but it's absolutely gorgeous there are many things that I, I really like about um, this concerto but overall moving on to the I do want to, to talk about the second movement just because I want to introduce just a little bit of each spending a little less time on the other two um, here but so the second movement is and also in my opinion just it begins with one of the the most gorgeous just it's, it's just a melody that only Tchaikovsky could write you know just to put it just to put it frankly only Tchaikovsky could write this and yeah. and the the tempo indication and andantinto semplice and it is very simple like it's amazing in music a lot of the times it's like the simplest things end up being the most timeless the most how do i put it the most well recepted so here we go. Here's the first, just the uh, theme of the second movement. Again, Lovely. just a gorgeous Beautiful. melody, gorgeous melody. Delicate, um, yeah, very, very delicate. But then, you know, in, in contrast to that, the middle section of the second movement, though, is, is a very, it's a very fast, marked, you know, prestissimo. It almost sounds like a scherzo in in the way that it's it's presented. It's very fast. It's very, very technically demanding for the performer, and it's very difficult for. Um, the orchestra, I think, and the piano to sort of stay together. But anyway, so... I think Andy was diagnosed as a scherzo, too. <laughs> with the, uh, with the scherzo actually, scherzo is ger means uh, I'm joking, or joking, in German. Yeah, it's a, exactly, it's a, it's a joke. Beethoven introduced that term. Yes, he did. In his third, third symphony? Um, there is... Anyway, it doesn't yeah, matter. So, yeah, Beethoven was the master of the German classical scherzo. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, that's uh, with with the second movement. Now, the third movement is which Andy was kind of re referring to when he's talking about it's kind of the you know the movement that just you know is, is so exciting and just you know filled with folk like dances, and that's exactly what he does in the third movement. Um, and the third movement, um, like he creates a moment at, at towards the end, the very end, right before the coda. And again, the coda, for those of us who 
um, might not be familiar with musical terms. Coda is the ending, right? It's kind of what wraps everything up um, before the second theme comes back in. So the second theme is one of another one of my favorite Tchaikovsky themes. Um, anywhere, anywhere. So I'm going to leave you guys on your own to listen to that, the third movement and the second movement, but I really encourage you guys to listen to the whole thing. Um, I know not only like you guys, but you know, the listeners too, because it's just, it's so wonderful. Yeah. One of the big takeaways I think here from that first concerto is how Tchaikovsky was a norm breaker, right? He, mm-hmm. you talked about how he, he shattered the norms and expectations for that first movement. And right away, right out of the gates, he left his audience confused and not sure what to expect and and out of their element and 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 just he had a kind of a penchant a passion for for um kind of bucking what everyone told him he was supposed to do yes yes he did and if you want to get into you're, i completely agree with that and i'm the kind of person who likes to always look at the well why why was he like that well if you want to look at his biography, um, and there's a fantastic, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to recommend, um, by all means, authors and things. Please. On here. Okay. So, uh, there's a great, uh, Dr. Robert Greenberg. Ooh, I love him. Gives a fantastic, yeah, he's great. He gives a fantastic, oh, it's, I don't know how many hours, eight or nine hour long, uh, lecture series about Tchaikovsky's life. And I would encourage, if anyone is interested in really committing eight or nine hours of their life, you know, over a period of time to learn about Tchaikovsky, this is the way to go. I really like the way he presents him um, and uh, tells, he just tells it like it is and even brings up the things that are uncomfortable about Tchaikovsky's life in a really um, straightforward kind of way. Mm-hmm. But so to wrap up this, this concerto is the big, and ironically, uh, Rubenstein, I'm sorry, Rubenstein, who said that he, it was unplayable, it, it was just, it, there was only a few good parts of it, the rest of it's trash, is basically what he told him. Um, he ended up apologizing to Tchaikovsky and performing it something like 130 <laughs> times in his own lifetime. So, That's yeah, a good and apology. that was his teacher, too. Exactly, yeah. because it was so, wow. it was so popular, and even to this day, um, you know, at, it, it just is. It's just a staple of the repertoire. Yeah. Obviously, it's something that every so, single person knows, even if they don't know the name of the piece or anything. You you know those right. melodies. At some point, can we get to the what makes Tchaikovsky like? Is he an uncomfortable figure in music history? Like, does he have some dark past that sort of like taints his legacy? That sort of complicates the enjoyment of this. This music, absolutely. We have some dirt on Tchaikovsky for sure, Oof. but the but we don't have that. That can be spoilers for later. I mean, we don't have no, to jump that's to that exactly, immediately. That's exactly where I was thinking. Now is a great time because <laughs> right. now that you're reminded of his music, you're you know we love his music. Everyone's been in love with his music. I have a portrait of Tchaikovsky hanging at home above my piano, and another one over here in my office. I love him so much, mm-hmm. but this is what they don't teach you in school. Right, they do not, at least not where I went to school, and not in most schools. Okay, so Tchaikovsky, just to put it very straightforward, 
they a lot of people and teachers and musicologists will try to mask this as yes he was he was gay or as a lot a lot of them would use the terminology homosexual but we don't do that here he was you know he was gay okay that's not a problem to us now right of course not but right. and even in you know during the time in Russia well I mean that wasn't so great and Tchaikovsky loathed himself for it but even more so he loathed himself he had let's say he was attracted to he's a pedophile young boys he's a pedophile ba- yeah basically i think it's still tough to be gay in russia today oh gosh i'm and sure yeah well at the, and back then i mean he yeah. could have been executed for it well and the argument is so especially if you listen to dr greenberg talk uh, in recent history there's evidence that he was forced to commit suicide because he was he had a, 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 a relationship with an 18-year-old nephew of um, who was related to the czar. That was a big deal. But it's argued that it's not so much that he even had the relationship. It was the class jumping, right? A person like Tchaikovsky was not supposed to ever be in a relationship with someone right. you know, of that of a class. But my problem with him is, and I guess my problem with the way that we learn about him is that no, I, we just skip over the fact that he traveled with an entourage of 14 and 15 year olds to satisfy himself, yeah. right? He regularly, you know, he, he had a gambling addiction and it, I don't care about your gambling addiction. I don't care how much you smoke. I don't care how much you drink. I mean, that's, those might be character flaws, right? But you know, that's not important to, to me, but you know, when hearing it, things and it, his own brother knew it, things like that, it's just, Makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Yeah, there's a whole story surrounding his writing of his violin concerto and the violinist with whom he was writing it, uh, and their like month long sexcapade. Mm-hmm. And then he wanted to dedicate it to like it was a whole fiasco. He and and I don't know how old that violinist was, but I know that he was a young up and. Um, he was younger than he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, he may have been twenty, but it wasn't Tchaikovsky's age, that's for sure. He didn't make it really easy on himself. He was not a a notoriously like pleasant person. Right. Well, you know he he was so unpleasant because of his own self loathing, mm-hmm. and it, it, he was always the kind of person that you I, I imagine he'd be the kind of person that you're just like, what is he hiding? You know, because he is hiding something, and. The big thing to me, oh, another big thing to me, I should say, was that the relationship he had with his um, nephew. Mm. Okay? Um, Yeah, he had a nephew who, um, his name was, they called him Bob Davidov, right? Um, His name was not Bob, actually. His name was Vladimir Davidov, but inexplicably he just went by Bob. Okay. Tchaikovsky was an avid like writer of letters. He wrote thousands and thousands of letters throughout throughout his life, and a lot of them, a whole lot of them, we still have. And there were a lot between him and his nephew, and a lot of about him talking about when his nephew was young, just writing in his diary about how much he, about how much basically he was in love with his nephew, and he ended up actually leaving all of his you know in his will. Pretty much everything went to his nephew. And there was a relationship 
there. So that also makes you feel uncomfortable, as I think it kind of should. So my question... My question about all this is like, so we, what, how do we handle that? I mean, I hate to use the term cancel culture because I think it, it kind of makes something that's important into something that's kind of dismissive, right? Like, oh, that's just, you know, cancel culture. You know, maybe it's cold outside. Who cares, right? But how do, what do you guys think about that? First of all, I think I think it's really a shame that we skirt over this in our education because I mean it's clear that we do know a lot about Tchaikovsky's life, um, and these are uncomfortable subjects. They should be uncomfortable subjects, but when you try to like erase or rewrite history, like you run the risk of just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Um, to me, like, I, I'm brought to mind, like, people like Kevin Spacey, people like Michael Jackson, allegedly. You right. know, th- this is not a new problem. This is a problem that dates back clearly thousands of years, Whoa. even longer. If, if you're talking about, like, predation on, you know, young minors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And especially the, the attraction to followings of people who are famous followings of artists or people with like a lot of social influence a lot of power and a lot of access to uh you know young children um this is something that can happen and one of the things we didn't cover but i i guess goes without saying when we talked briefly about michael jackson is he was like the biggest star in the world. Like you can't yeah. really overstate how much he was a super star. Right. There were normal stars and then there was Michael Jackson who was just completely separate apart from everyone else. Just like internationally well, and, famous. And like the pop stars that we listen to now are directly influenced by what he did the same way he was influenced by Motown and James Brown and funk and things like that. Like we, you can make a direct correlation to a number of artists now and even genres that he that he influenced. Mm-hmm. Yep. So to 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 me to get back to Tchaikovsky, I think that that doesn't mean we stop listening to Tchaikovsky. I think that means that when we are learning about Tchaikovsky, we need to be very explicit about saying look, this is a flawed person, here are the things that happened, and, you know, try to educate people about... See, I disagree entirely. I think that, uh, I I think, you know, all all of his music should stop being played anywhere and everywhere until he issues uh, an apology to everyone who he hurt. Fair enough. Yeah. That's going to be tough. Listen, I, I... People say that... To be creative, to to have that artistic impulse to a certain extent, you you almost need to have some sort of kind of damage, right? That that uh, I've I've heard it said mm. that creativity and that that artistic output is is often a, a not always but often a, a direct expression or, or or outlet for some hurt that 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 person has undergone. Well, okay, so. Yeah, I, I, think I can. True. I I've thought a lot about that, and I'm kind of torn about that because 
I understand that line of thinking, and I think that that's true to some extent. But I also think it's I kind of uh, approach it from the thought of a lot of these artists were successful in spite of a lot of their mm. flaws, right? You know, not because of, but in spite of. Um, that's just, you know, something. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I kind of that's not a thought that's actually completely <laughs> structured yet, but I kind of am leading towards that line of thinking. But in, uh, just getting back to one point that some we talk about Michael Jackson uh, being, I, oh gosh, the most famous person in the world practically when he was at his height of fame, right? And having so much influence. It's important to note that Tchaikovsky, the level of influence he had at his time and his fame was pretty big, okay? Mm -hmm. He... You've all probably, I mean, most people have heard of um, Sergei Rachmaninoff, another fantastic Russian composer. Tchaikovsky had a, you know, was, when he was young as a student at the uh, uh, Moscow Conservatory, Tchaikovsky was like one of his mentors, right? And it's, you know, even after, arguably, Tchaikovsky was forced to poison himself with arsenic. And then it was covered up and you know, said it was cholera, right, which is a whole other topic of conversation. The biggest funeral that they had ever seen in Russia happened for Tchaikovsky. Wow. Right? So, and arguably, I've heard it argued, you know, that it, arguably the biggest um, funeral that's ever been in Russia as far as the amount of people who attended. So he did have a lot of influence over people. But, you know, the thing is, like I remember, or I think to myself, he's – obviously deceased for a long time. He has no influence over anyone anymore, right, except for through his music. But I don't think that we can ignore it. I think that it should be talked about in, at the college level when we're, we're teaching music students about this and even at the, the level of general music appreciation. Maybe not in you know middle school, mm -hmm. but does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I don't know, Ignition Remix is a banger. The Cosby Show is hilarious. You know, like, there are these things, yep. what, like, I love House of Cards. There's, there's a bunch of things that yeah. monsters have made that are still good. And I think there's something to be said for separating an artist from their art. But I also think there need to be consequences for horrific acts. And, like, I'm the, I'm the guy on the show who mm. always says cancel culture is nothing. Like, I don't, like, I don't think people complaining about having consequences for their actions is anything. I don't give a shit. Um, but right. I, do, I don't think that we should like erase what they've done because a lot of them have done good stuff. But I also don't know where that line is. For Tchaikovsky, it's easy because we have so much distance between when he created his these works and now. Exactly. It's trickier for people that we have to interact with. <laughs> well, and I think, right. you know, um, there's also something to be said for how different the, the culture he lived in was. Michael Jackson lives in, lived in pretty much, you know, modern times. Uh, Tchaikovsky lived in much more conservative times. So when he... For him to be gay was punishable by death, potentially, if if it were to get into the wrong ears, someone didn't like him and it was a high up or something like that, right? But, okay, so I think that there is still a distinction that is to be made 
if you are materially contributing to something. So it wasn't a single isolated incident if we're talking about R. Kelly. We're talking about even recently there are newer accusations that are coming out. There are new allegations that are coming out. The The amount of fame and wealth and power have contributed to being able to avoid consequences, being able to continue to reoffend, having access to vulnerable people to um, right. take advantage of. So, I mean, is there a problem with that? If you if you bought his album and you paid some amount of money towards that wealth and power and influence, do you share in that responsibility? If if you've done that after the you know, the first controversy, that might be a matter of opinion. But I think I think it's a, yeah. a good question to ask: is you know is that material contribution? Are you helping someone continue to continue to hurt people? And I think ultimately, you know, we're all kind of biased, and we're all likely to be more forgiving with artists that we whose art we like, and less forgiving with artists whose art we don't like as much. Like, I don't... I I don't even sure. want to have a discussion about Michael Jackson. He can rot in his coffin. That's exactly how and I feel. I'm, yeah. I'm super happy about that. Um, and I I hate his music, too. I don't like his music. That's a, ver- that's a yeah. very human thing to do, is to... The artist that you like... Mm-hmm needs special yeah. protection and um you know should be forgiven because they're really a good person at heart but the but the Screw artists them. that you don't like yeah because you know, i love tchaikovsky rot, and i'm hell. not gonna like I, defend <laughs> pedophilia but there's there's like that part of me and and i don't i don't know it's hard to separate in my head if this is because i love his music or whatever but there's that part of me that thinks you know say in tchaikovsky's case like because he was forced to repress his natural feelings did that drive him into a darker and and deeper kind of I don't know what I, how how to say this exactly but like you know you hear about like the 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 puritanical religious people who or or even just the evangelicals in America right now where <laughs> they'll have like the map of the craziest porn searches by state and it's always the the Bible Belt that has like the craziest, most awful stuff, and you know, exactly. or or <laughs> it's fun when <laughs> when Cleveland held the Republican National Convention, <laughs> the searches on Pornhub were like crazy. But what I will yeah. say is, I think sort of piggybacking off what you're saying, <laughs> there's an argument to be made that fame can lead to these kind of terrible excesses, the the mm. this type of temptation of doing things that are monstrous. Um, yeah. And a lot of times it, it like, I think it has a, a lot, not a lot to do with sexuality and a whole lot to do with power dynamics. Yes, I agree. hundred percent. Yep. Totally. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. That was an easy one. Let's slam dunk that. Okay. Moving on. So, <laughs> yeah. so I guess I'm the only one who still uh, listens to, like Billie Jean or uh, Thriller or anything like that. It's, I, it's rough. I still have that on my playlist, but I don't think that that makes you know the things that he did during his life okay. And I haven't forgotten about them. 
Um, but you keep well, giving them money. But I I think music is music, so I personally enjoy those songs. I don't see there's really well, a problem. Here's my problem with with that versus someone like um, Tchaikovsky or, or Schubert or some or even you know Wagner. Richard Wagner is also very controversial, yeah. but for different reasons. But that's a whole other uh, thing. Is that one of the reasons why why I consciously try not to listen to Michael Jackson is because I know so many people, myself included, all of us were, he was alive at some point during our lifetimes, right? We were, Mm -hmm. um, what, older teenagers or whatever when he died. So we know a lot of people who our parents and even our grandparents, our aunts and uncles and older friends and things who were alive during that time. And also some of them, not all, not all, but some of them are also the same kind of people that you know are still going to listen to Michael Jackson. And but during the time that the, all the the scandal was happening, they were some of these people were the ones who were kind of defending him, or you know, no, not Michael Jackson. That you know, whoever it was was a liar or whatever. It's like, um, does that make sense? So it's like I don't want, I want to make it very clear to people like that that I don't listen to his music out of principle. Mm-hmm. I just don't, because. But now with mm. Tchaikovsky, the 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 reason why now okay that's that's kind of maybe hypocritical because here I sit you know with the the music Tchaikovsky in front of me and have studied it and everything, but there isn't you know he's he's it's been a long 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 enough time that there is no one alive now that can be a sympathizer for him, as if that makes sense. For me, it's also different because there's no one benefiting from, like, financially benefiting yeah. from Tchaikovsky's music being taken in. Yeah. I think right now, like, Michael Jackson's uh, music is still under copyright. The Cosby Show is and, like, all these all these other things. So so for my Spotify listen, they're going to get, like, one three hundredth of mm-hmm. a cent or something. Right, and you – but you and the other – what what I will tell you is after the allegations for Michael Jackson came out, it did not slow down uh, radio stations playing his music at all, or I'm sure streaming services recommending his music at all. So there's still like that one three hundredth of a penny. You can joke about it, but when a few hundred million people listen to that music on a fairly regular basis, fractions of a penny add up. Yeah. So I'm certainly not materially contributing to someone continuing to right. offend. If anything, there's like family or people who own the rights to music still that would still be and profiting. But in in no way are those people, you know, continuing to uh, hurt people in in the same way that Michael Jackson had a lot of power and secrecy and. Uh, influence in order to be able to do that, but at at the same time, like, am I am I wrong to just go around enjoying the things that I like? I'm, like, there are there are just songs that I just think are catchy. Like, are you are you reprimanding me for uh, just like you know not taking moral or ethical considerations into my musical taste? No, which just I, here's here's what I'll say because you know you guys know that I will. Uh, throw down on somebody with not a lot like I will judge people at the drop of a hat no problem but I I think this has to be a it has to be a personal choice so I can't tell other people like do I think it's good to listen to that music no no I don't 
but I'm also not going to come after you. It's it's unethical in the same way that I think shopping at Walmart is unethical. Like, you probably <laughs> shouldn't do it, but I, I'm not going to tell you how to live your damn life either. I'm not going to do it. That's exactly where I – okay, I, I agree. It's it's somewhere if on the – if our scope here is going to Walmart and voting for Donald Trump, it's not as bad as voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> we brought it back around you know, again. Maybe a little bit worse than going to I, Walmart. I knew we would get back. I knew we would get back to Donald Trump well, somehow. You know, I like I I like what you said. I agree with that. Like, I don't. Okay, one of the things I really don't. I don't personally don't like to tell people how I think they should feel, right? Or necessarily how I think that they should think, right? But I think it's important to at least be informed, you know, about about these things. So I don't think that I don't judge you for having Michael Jackson on your playlist. I personally don't have him on my playlist, but. You know, I would not judge you for that. You also wanted to talk about another composer tonight. Yeah, I wanted to. So just to, to dive a little bit into to Schubert, um, Franz Schubert is another one of those people that you probably, some of his music is probably familiar to you. Not necessarily as much as Tchaikovsky, though, uh, but it it would be familiar to some of us. So he was another one who had a very questionable childhood and what the reason i've always been fascinated with schubert okay um the reason why i was fascinated with schubert it actually started when i was in college i had a fantastic music professor who told us that straight up that you know he was at a conference in the 90s and this musicologist uh, named uh, arthur solomon presented this paper um this paper about schubert and this paper that uh, basically argued that his lifestyle was just a little bit beyond you know a little bit questionable so just a brief synopsis of schubert's lifestyle he was pretty much penniless broke he didn't even like wasn't even like wealthy enough to own a piano for most of his life he contracted syphilis and died of syphilis right and had a lot of exchanges with prostitutes and just was a a complete complete mess but uh, solomon went a bit further and actually Argued that no, his his circle of friends were all I, what, what's the term um, pederasts? I think is what he said, but we would call them pedophiles, right? Of course, and so he's another one. But he didn't have, unlike Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky later in life achieved a lot more popularity and um, some some fame and had a really nice you know estate and influence over people. Schubert literally just. He was a pathetic human being. He was an absolutely <laughs> pathetic human being. But the, he just was. I mean, I love, yeah. like, um, but so about that, back to about the, the Solomon uh, paper, though, and that, oh, gosh, if you look, if you do any kind of research on Schubert, you, it amuses me how many um, rebuttals there are to that article. And apparently in the 90s during this conference, it was allegedly, like, the most um, heated uh, presentation that, uh, my professor had ever seen people yelling and screaming at him, <laughs> not Schubert. You can't know. He wasn't your, you know, like literally like all these musicologists and academics. And so then there's been all this back and forth people, you know, rebutting the article and, and things like that. And Solomon has wrote more, but I'll link these articles that I'm talking about. If I can, if there's a way for me to link. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Please. If you send me those, yeah. that stuff, we have what we call a doobly-doo yeah. that we throw stuff in. Oh, so. 
perfect. So it's it's a long read, but it's 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 interesting. But so you can see all the details and the argument there. And I'll just tell you that it sounds it is sounds very plausible to me. And the reason it stuck with me is because my that one professor he was very much like yeah this he presented that how I thought it should be presented. You know this is unfortunate. It kind of sucks. It really does, but it's true. And so, but with Schubert. Um, that's the reason why I chose him, even though there are there are other examples. One of Schubert's songs, like I said, he was a consummate writer of songs, German art songs. We call them the leader. Was one called uh, Die Forella, which the translation that we have for that is the trout. Okay, <laughs> the the sexiest fish, isn't it though? <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty sexy. Just wait but, till you um, smell so it. <laughs> about the the trout just to give you a little i don't it, it might be worth it i chose this one because first of all the melody here if you some of you might uh recognize it i remember hearing it all the time as a kid but then i was a huge nerd so <laughs> that might be why <laughs> so here it is So that's the, the melody. It's sung, uh, accompanied by the piano, and then Schubert liked the melody so much that he turned it into a string quartet. And a string quartet is, uh, for this you might not know, is a piece of music that's written for, um, in Schubert's time, usually in Schubert's time it would have been um, two, two violins, two violins, a viola, a cello, and a piano. But there's actually also, there's actually a double bass in there. Okay, so it's it's a quartet. You'll have to look. I can't remember which instrument he swaps out for the the bass, but it's in there. Um, I'm not a string player, so I have the right not to know off the top of my head. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, but what <laughs> nice. I like. So, going back to the song, the song version is it was it was written in about 1817, and interestingly enough, the words are written by a guy named Christian Friedrich Daniel Schubert. Spelled S C H U B A R T, literally one letter different than Schubert's name. So Schubert wrote this song based off of Schubert's poem of the same name, Diferella. And basically, it's it's about it's the it, the words are from the perspective of an onlooker on a river bank who's taking joy and pleasure and watching quote happy little fish swim in the river, right? Um, and then when the fisherman arrives. Or the, um, and on much to the onlookers is May, right? He catches the trout. So it's about a guy basically watching a fisherman catch these innocent little trout. Okay, and, and yeah, that's what it's about. And the words, so the words to the poem, if you'll, if I may, in English translation here, is in a clear little brook they darted about in happy haste. The moody trout dashing everywhere like an arrow. I stood on the bank and watched in sweet peace. The fish's bath in the queer little brook. A fisherman came with his gear, came to stand on the bank, and watched with cold blood as the little fish weaved here and there. But as long as the warm water remains clear, I thought, no worry, he'll never catch the trout with his hook. But finally, for the thief, 
Time seemed to pass too slowly. He made the little brook murky, and before I thought it could be, so his line twitched, there thrashed the fish, and I, with raging blood, gazed on the betrayed one. <laughs> so it's actually, it's actually not wow. a happy little song, even though it sounds like it, right? So, but the thing is, um, so in an, in an analysis of a lot of his songs and the poems that he chose and things like that, in Schubert's life, and if you, one, I've heard it argued from the perspective, you know, do you think that this is not such a happy little song anymore? It's actually kind of a song about, you know, predatory behavior, right? It's basically, it's, it really kind of is presented in such a lighthearted, happy way. I mean, that just sums up Schubert in a nutshell. I mean, outwardly, he was sending out all of these happy little Viennese waltzes and, you know, uh, nice music. And then until towards the end of his life and some of his later piano works and things were just so dark and tragic, right? So I think like most any artist, especially during that time where you're not, he wasn't always being influenced by a, um, a publisher, right? Or he wasn't always commissioned. I mean, a lot, most of the things he wrote, he wrote because he wanted to write them, right? As opposed to a lot of, uh, music throughout history, classical music that's being written for a specific purpose, right? Um, this, a lot of this was just written because he wanted to. He was truly expressing himself. So that's another way, another example. And the, I, the reason, like I said, I wanted to bring up Schubert is because of that conference back in the 90s. And even to this day, like you can find so many articles, people just, they just cannot accept this fact about it. And I don't think that all teachers or you know, professors or whatever want to even go there because it's just too unpleasant. So I think that's a really important takeaway as well. Like, we've got to, as a society and individually, we have to confront the bad alongside the good. Yeah. I don't want to bring this back around to politics too much, but there's, there's a lot of that tendency way more than just in musical preferences to to just put, put up blinders. Right. I keep on thinking of Columbus. You know, like, you have this person that was important to the country's history, and also he was a monster. But we don't teach that he was a monster. We don't teach that he, it wasn't really him that did it. We go ahead and tell people, like, here's an American hero. End of story. Right. Yeah. I, th I think people are starting to, like, historians are starting to come around and say, like, how he wasn't really that important in the long run. That, like, the, <laughs> the European discovery of the Americas really had nothing to do with Columbus. And anyway, when you're discovering a place you don't discover a place that has people already there. Like, right. that's not a discovery. That's Well, it's this very Eurocentric kind of approach. Right. There are people already yeah. there. Yeah. I, I don't know I don't know what's still yeah. going on in schools, but that's, I mean, I, the modern historical perspective, oh, yeah. I think, is shifting I, towards that rather than rather than the mythologized I think I, uh, Columbus. I think I put a meme up uh, in our Discord, and, and maybe we'll post it along with the episode at some point or something like that, but... Somebody had graffitied on a building. What did it say? Um, I can't do the words. <laughs> I think it was... Christopher Columbus. 
Yeah, it was Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Man, truly, truly just a work of art. Just So uh, damn clever. Poet <laughs> um, came up with that. Just, <laughs> but, you know, the, the town of Columbus, Ohio is, is is considering changing their name. The people, a lot of people want it to be Flavortown, which I think is just absurd and silly. But <laughs> what on earth? Are you are you serious? They're going to change the name of Columbus? Uh, yeah, because apparently uh, Guy Fieri lived there for some amount of time. Yeah, no. Well, let me just say, I don't want to talk about Christopher Columbus. What I want to do is I want to talk about the idea that heroes and artists and whoever, they can be messy. They can have problems and the things that they did can still have value. It doesn't mean that you ignore the terrible things they did. You should absolutely go ahead and put those things right next to the works of art that they did. So you can watch Lethal Weapon, but then you also have to watch that interview with Mel Gibson where he, I, I don't even want yeah. to repeat, he just says some, like yeah. pretty well, off-the-wall crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah, anti-Semitic stuff. Anti-Semitic stuff. Like There's a whole one bunch of stuff. we called the police officer sugar I, I'm sitting right here next to my copy of the U.S. Constitution, and and most of these guys held slaves. You know, I mean, exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. There's a fun painting that I'll go ahead and put up, where there's a, a painting of the signers of the Declaration, and someone has gone through and circled in red everyone in that room who owns slaves, and it's more than half. It's not good. Right. Mm. So. Yeah. But, but anyway, Schubert, so when we're talking about Schubert, like what what's he really accused of having done? We talked briefly about his his life and his history, but we're we're saying like in the same sort of vein of like, you know, pederasty and like uh abusing victims and stuff like that, like he and and that is controversial, like we're we're not certain that that's what happened. It's not so much Okay, the uncertainty, I just don't see how the uncertainty isn't there because, I mean, this paper by uh, Solomon and more arguments in favor of Solomon come after people really analyzed a lot, you know, Schubert's writings and a lot of new writings that have been discovered back during that time. Um, it's really, it's to me, it's more of a stretch to try to argue that it mm. didn't happen, right, than it did happen. Mm. Now exactly like which victims and he's being accused of what actions and everything it's kind of unknown but it is known that Schubert's group of people you know that he spent the majority of his life living with and uh, associating with they often wrote in code about these things um, about you know like I said I, I linked to the article that you can read it and make a judgment for yourself but you know, the, the reality is I, I mean, my reality is to me, I truly believe that I believe that he is guilty of these, you know, this serious character flaw as being um, a, a predatory or mm -hmm. it's just it's there. And, you know, of course, well, what's the point in teaching that or talking about that? It has nothing to do with, you know, music. Well, you know, that's that's not how well, I so that. But so um, I mean, that is an argument that a lot of people make, you know, uh it's just funny the people who make this argument, but so you know it's it's a it's a big problem in our society uh, with 
um, cognitive dissonance and how we deal with that. Cognitive dissonance, of course, being the state of kind of anxiety when a new set of facts challenges a preconceived notion. So, for example, you have Republicans who get outraged when Roseanne Barr gets her show canceled because she says racist stuff or, um, you know, politicians get crushed because they said something super racist. But then they these same people um, also poo-poo cancel culture as this as as a bunch of toddlers whining because they see something they don't like. And, you know, that's how culture evolves, is by people deciding what are we going to be, what are we okay with and what aren't we? Well, you know what? I think that we're getting to the close to the end of the episode, and I think we want to wrap things up a little bit. I am not in a position to say... <laughs> who people should or should not take in art of, but I do think it is very good to be aware of it. Did anybody else uh, have anything that they wanted to wrap up before we get to Precious Moments? I think that, especially when you're talking about long-dead artists, there's a tendency to kind of cast them in stone, in a sense. We, we look at these people as... Tchaikovsky is looked at as this prolific composer... And he certainly was that, but he was also right. a human being. He was also a yeah. deeply troubled man. He also wrote a lot, you know, he wrote a lot of silly music. And one of my favorite things is Beethoven's Second Symphony was written about, he wrote it about his bowel troubles, his, his gastrointestinal troubles, because he farts a lot. That's what his second symphony is yeah, about. Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> Jared, you were talking about uh, Mozart. What well, was, so uh, Mozart, yeah. being the juvenile that he was throughout his whole entire life, wrote a song that's <laughs> called um, Lick Mine a which means Lick My a <laughs> Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking awesome. <laughs> Thank you.
so so for me, the takeaway for the whole thing is I am not going to censor like what music that I listen to. To me, like you enjoy what you enjoy. You're going to listen to what you want to listen to, but don't lose the lesson of history. Don't throw away any valuable lessons that we might learn from this sort of predatory behavior. And it's something that we as a society, we should really try and be cautious of in the future is like, you know, the consolidation of influence and power in a celebrity like that sort of access, that sort of power is something that we should be careful about. I mean, I don't want to, you know, not to be like slippery slope or anything, but you can imagine how that would get so out of control that some, like, reality TV star could become president. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine a world... Yeah, wow. I can't imagine what that would be like. Great job to bring wow. it back. Oh, Lord. I... <laughs> well, before we completely wrap up, yeah. I definitely want to say thanks again, Jared. You have been yes, phenomenal. Yes, thank you. I thank can't you say thank you It's been awesome. I had so much fun. Great to be here. We'll have to have you on again sometime to explore, you know, deep dive on just like one composer and, and listen to some more selections. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. One, the other thing we love to do is we like to take friends of the podcast, which you now qualify as, and reuse them over and over again for different episodes. <laughs> so if there's things That's that you're true. into that okay. aren't music as well, <laughs> we're, we're saying let us, let us use you. Um, you should Ooh. get your T-shirt in the mail, <laughs> right? In my check. Uh, have you guys? <laughs> we should make T-shirts. <laughs> we do need to make T-shirts. Uh, so, has anybody heard of that Stravinsky no, um, piece, uh, "Precious Moments"? You're thinking of Hallmark. I George think you're, Hallmark. You're probably thinking of <laughs> oh, okay. a piece of music that either by um, Stravinsky or Rachmaninoff that was used for something, and then they nicknamed it "Precious Moments." That's what I would guess. Precious moments. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that is my awkward transition into our segment. Precious moments. I took moments you totally at the end of the episode. I took you totally seriously. I was like, wait, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> it works. <laughs> I I always try and ambush everybody with those, and I'm the glad, precious I'm moments is the second one is, is the second movement so, of so the we, rite of spring, but you never get to it because the oh, riot gotcha. happens first. Okay. Yes, exactly. Oh, we right. we need to talk about that in another episode too. Such an interesting yeah. uh, story. But anyway, precious moment. Does anybody have anything? From this week or some other time that they kind of sort of um, this actually wasn't super well. It's not from like this week. It's from about a month ago, but um, it happened right here in Ohio. I saw this NPR story about it, and it just caught my eye. It was as just an odd little story to come out in the middle of the pandemic. At a Red Lobster right here in Cuyahoga Falls, which is down by Akron, right right here in Northeast Ohio, they found in a Red Lobster tank this, like, rare blue lobster. I don't really, you know, I don't know mm. the, I don't know lobsters, I'm not a marine biologist or anything, I just mm. like the way they taste. They thought it was a fake at first. 
Like this like a blue guy was just hanging out there with the red lobsters. Yeah. It well, you're right. the sea lover in you. Crazy. So anyway, kind of odd. Um, I just assumed that like red lobster had like a like a a boat somewhere in like the worst part of the ocean, just like picking up like the most decrepit yeah. lobsters and just shipping them back. Like <laughs> right. that's crazy. There'd be such a rare lobster in the red lobster tank. Yep. Right, and the thing that they don't understand is like the lobsters are the least good part of that place. Like they just need to focus on the cheddar baked biscuits, and everything else will like they're still gonna oh, make. Man. They're still gonna make. I think profit. the first ingredient is butter. They took him to the Akron Zoo. Oh wow! Like they get they gave him to the zoo. I've seen pictures of other blue lobsters, but there's some insane, insanely small chance of it happening. But it's like this beautiful, bright cobalt yeah. blue. It is like, it's crazy. This story happened it. like a month ago, but it was right here in Ohio. And I don't know why, but it it just is what popped into my head when I was trying to think of a good precious moment. So there you go. It's a good precious moment. Now, Jared, you can either go, based on your comfort level, you can uh, do one of three things. Not say anything at all. Uh, you can go now or whenever you'd like, or you can go last. Whatever, whatever's last is sometimes easiest because it gives you more time to think of something. Now means that you don't have to worry about like going after somebody else who has a killer one like <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, so my precious moment is kind of strange, but. So I love movies, and there's, like, I feel like I've seen, like, most of the, like, classics, like, the good movies, like, the really good ones that you must see, right? I'd never seen The Sixth Sense, because I never thought mm -hmm. that it was any, you know, I just <laughs> never thought it was that great of a movie. And maybe oh, it yeah. isn't, but I I watched it, and I was, like, hooked, like, the whole time. The ending, like, blew my mind, and in a way that, like, no other film has done recently, and I felt so ridiculous that I had not seen that movie, even though I've had the opportunity to watch it literally hundreds of times. So that's my pr precious moment. <laughs> that is phenomenal. That It is 2020, like and the, the Sixth 90s, Sense, hold right? on, let me pull this up here. Yeah. The, ni 1999, so you managed to go 21 years with the most joked know, about ending in like the history of the world, it was not, and not was have not the spoiled ending spoiled for, me. for that, you. That, my reaction to it was so genuine. I was like, "Oh my god, no!" So it was a, it, it was, it was precious. Yeah, I think that's easily the best thing that M Night Shyamalan has done. And like, I, I thought uh, you're forgetting no, about the last Airbender all. movie. Uh, but the Village was pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think this one was a slam dunk, and I think like you know everything the the twist ending and just like the sort of like tragedy of it, like I think this was really like a, a awesome flick. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, check it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, that movie that came out. In 1999. <laughs> I think I was gonna say like my my first reaction was, I it's not so shocking that you haven't seen it, but that you were. Surprised by it is right. incredible. I, <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, because I I can like I'm thinking I can think of like at least a dozen jokes in a dozen different like comedy shows and other movies and stuff like that that have referenced the ending of that. Yeah. So that's fantastic. 
Um, Pat, you want to go next? Um, you go ahead, because I, I don't good. really know what I'm doing yet. Okay. The the bold move of letting me, who has the best one, go before you. Yeah, I'm not sure about okay, that, but so okay. So mine, mine, I wanted to do a, a musically themed one. I actually have two of them. Um, my first one is really quick. Uh, it is Ryan Reynolds uh, decided to oh, start yeah. a new streaming service. Uh, for movies, and the thing about it is, it's free. You can you can go and you can watch all the movies on it for free. Um, it's m- called MintMobilePlus.com. I'll go ahead and make sure we get it in the doobly doo. The only thing about it is, it only has 1993's Foolproof, starring Ryan Reynolds. But <laughs> they've created like six or eight different box art poster pictures for the thing, so it looks like there are a bunch of different movies, <laughs> but it's just one movie. <laughs> so it's phenomenal. My favorite is they have, like, a top ten list <laughs> that's just foolproof with different pictures over and over and over again. That's, that's That is great. pretty good. But uh, the thing that I wanted, that I wanted to be musically themed, is that... Turkey in the Straw, which oh, is yeah. what you hear when the uh, ice cream truck comes rolling into your uh, neighborhood. Mega racist. Has a horribly, horribly oh, yeah. racist oh, past. Yeah. I'm going to link uh, the Wikipedia article where you can uh, read some of the awful alternate or not alternate, original yeah. lyrics for this thing. And uh, it's it's real bad. It's real, real bad. But RZA from Wu-Tang Clan has now written a new jingle for Ice Cream Trucks to play. And it's dope. I'm going to go ahead and include it right here. I love that. <laughs> so that's my precious moment. And uh, it's actually nice. Yeah, it's, it's a good, good thing. So I have no idea where this came from <laughs> or what year this is. Um, across across my travels in the, uh, uh-huh. in the sundry place known as the Internet, I found this picture and it's, it's hard to describe, but... Um, it seems to be just like hundreds and hundreds of people uh, mooning the camera, <laughs> okay. like just full nude mooning the camera, which wouldn't be that interesting of a picture. But I recognized from the picture, it seems to be the old Browns stadium and the uh, like, you know, those um, like by the waterfront, by the by the stadium they have uh those like concrete barriers with yeah. chains in between them i was like that looks like cleveland and it absolutely is 
Brown yep, Stadium, yeah. and I'm just baffled by when and where this picture could have taken place because the amount of cooperation, it I'll I'll I guess link it in the doobly doo or we'll something, see. but it's just an incredible number of people, and I don't I don't know how this couldn't have been news because it's hundreds and hundreds of people. It would have required a massive amount of organization, and I don't so, remember well, hearing for, about this. I'll make so, sure to blur out right. everyone's asses individually. Um, I I thought what you were going to say was that you would you would recognize someone you knew from their ass, <laughs> like oh that's yeah. my mom. Like, yeah. uh, I, kn- I know that ass. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you guys both went to the same. Um, no, but I, I don't know who, like, the, it's such a mystery because I don't know who put on the, this event, how they advertised this event, how, like, how they got so many hundreds of people into the photo to cooperate for this shot. Like, there's just a, for what purpose? My guess. Like, what were they trying to accomplish with this? I just have so many questions yeah, about no, no. why Actually, you would do I, I'm something. I'm looking at like it right this. now. It looks like the photographer's name is Seymour Butts. <laughs> Bazinga! Oh. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Got him. Uh, so I, I have a. There's a an artist called Spencer Tunic, and he does these these giant nude photographs of volunteers. And I know people from my church. Like one was a lady in her 80s. Who went and volunteered at one of those uh, things? Because um, they did they did a few in Cleveland, and it was really interesting. Oh, maybe that is exactly um, what that, it is. It could be Spencer Tunic, uh, but you know what I thought you were going to say? I thought you were going to say I need to come up with the catchphrase. Well, hopefully, at the very least, we give you guys something to think about this week. Uh, I also want to hop in and say that um, thank you so much for being with us this week, Jared, yeah. and uh, we really appreciate it. You knocked it out of the park, buddy. Woo! Mini fact check. This is where the lads realized that Jared's recording device had given up at the very end of the episode, so he could still hear us, we could still hear him, but you can't hear anything. He assures us it's not a big deal. He didn't have anything interesting to say at the end, so... Thanks again, Jared! Okay, love you, bye. Excuse me. Sorry, Nathan.